Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer before before we begin. Father, our Lord and our God, open up your word to us today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the way that in this passage you reveal who you are in your incomparable compassion and grace. Show us the glory of your loving kindness. Uh, Enable us to embrace the truth of your word today. Do not allow us to leave here unchanged. Amen. Well, A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think it's equally important that what comes into our minds when we think about God is what God would want us to think about Him, what He has revealed about Himself. And one of the most uh, revealing uh, passages of Scripture is what we're going to study today. Exodus, it comes out of Exodus 34, and that's where we're going to be, where this is where God reveals himself to Moses. And you see, Moses had been talking with God in the tent of meeting, but he wanted a fuller revelation of God's majesty. He wanted to see God as God is in himself. And so he says, I pray you, show me your glory. Uh, And in response, God told Moses there are limits to what he could see. Moses was only a man, a sinful man at that. He could not endure the direct sight of God's glory. (laughs) But he could survive a passing glance. So God told him, hide in a cleft in the rock. And God would cover that with his hand and God would pass by in all his goodness. And at the last possible moment, he would let Moses catch a fleeting glimpse of the backside of his glory. Moses would see what he so desperately wanted to see. Something no man had ever seen before. God pass him by in his glory. But but before Moses could see the glory of God, he had to get ready. And that's where we are in our uh, passage right now in Exodus 34 as we've been working through the book of Exodus. So it says here in Exodus 34, Yahweh said to Moses, carve out for yourself two stone uh, tablets like the former ones. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be prepared by morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. And no man is to come with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds may not graze in front of that mountain. Now this was meant for Israel's protection. It wasn't safe for people to touch God's holy mountain. It wasn't even safe for the animals to touch it. 
This is because of God's supreme holiness. The mountain was made sacred by God's holy presence. And once again, as Moses had did the first time, uh, God was going to give to Moses the Ten Commandments. And, but only Moses was allowed to go up. Now, if you remember the last time, Moses and Aaron went up. And Aaron traveled about halfway up the mountain with Moses. But this time, it's only Moses going up. Not even Aaron this time. And if you think about it, I mean, what was the situation with Aaron? In a sense, Aaron represents the sinfulness of the people. He was the one that created the golden calf. Moses is the mediator. He's, he represents, between the two of them, he represents uh, obedience to God. And so Aaron was not allowed to go up this time. But Moses, uh, the man chosen before God for the people. Now the good news here, the good news is that God still wanted his people to have his law. You know, the first edition of the Ten Commandments had been destroyed. When Moses came down, you remember the story, he came down, he saw the golden calf, he threw the first set of tablets on the ground, shattering them into pieces. Israel, in a sense, had broken the covenant. But God was willing to pick up the pieces of that broken relationship and renew his covenant with his people. Now, the first time that Moses uh, was given the law, uh, God provided even the tablets on which the law was written. God said this. He said, I will give you the stone tablets and the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And God, it says, God gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony. So here we see the divine origin of even the tablets. Second time around, it says that Moses has to bring his own tablets. Uh, the Bible doesn't really explain why, but we're, uh, we speculate that it's probably the man-made tablets serving as a reminder of man's sin, of Israel's sin in this case. But the point here is that even a broken covenant can be restored. A broken covenant can be renewed. The law would be written on these new tablets, even though these tablets were created by Moses. Same law, different, different tablets. And God said, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. Probably a little reminder of Moses, uh, which you shattered. Remember that. So God still wanted to have a relationship with his people. He wanted them to live by his law. He wanted them to worship him alone. And Moses did everything God told him. The Bible says he carved out two, st two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai, Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took the two stone tablets in his hand. Now, we don't know the exact size of these stone tablets, but obviously they were small enough so that Moses could carry them in his hands, small enough to actually fit in the Ark of the Covenant, but large enough to have the commandments written on them. Well, the Bible says that Moses 
went up God's mountain. But you know, when he reached the top of the mountain, God still had to come down. No matter how high we reach, God still has to come down. For us to have an encounter with God at all requires his infinite condensation, condescension. He's the creator. We're only creatures. He's enthroned in heaven. We dwell on earth below. But on this particular occasion, God came down in a glorious cloud, a theophany, an appearance of God. Just as God appeared to Moses at the burning of the bush, so he appeared again on the mountain. But here's the interesting thing. Moses wanted to see God, but rather than telling us what he saw, the Bible tells us what he heard. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him. And he called and he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. So even Moses here, had to live by faith and not by sight. He had asked to see God's glory and God showed at least a glimpse of it. But what God mainly did here was preach a sermon about his divine attributes. God proclaimed his name to Moses. He explained the meaning of his name by listing some of his perfections. He told Moses about his compassion and his grace, his patience, his loving kindness, and his truth, sometimes seen as faithfulness. This is what God wanted Moses to see, the goodness of his divine nature. And in a way, this was also about his glory. For what, what is the glory? What is the glory of God? It's the weightiness of his being. It's the totality of God's perfections, to use that term. And so God said, all right, Moses, come on up here and I'll show you who I am. If you really want to know me, it's not about seeing what I look like. It's about knowing my infinite perfections, especially as I display them in the salvation of sinners. That's the key. And so God preached his word to Moses, proclaiming his sacred name, announcing his sovereign attributes. And think about it. How many people you hear today, oh, if only I could see God, if only I knew what God looked like. It's not what God looks like. This is what we need, not to see what God looks like. You know, one day we will when we gaze upon his glory on the glory of Christ but it's not to see what he looks like but to hear the words that God has spoken about himself and so God started off by saying Yahweh Yahweh God God announced himself to Moses you know in case there was any doubt uh, now I'm reading from what is the legacy standard Bible and that goes ahead and puts Yahweh in place of what might be in your translations, the word Lord in all capital letters. And that's really all it means. If you ever see 
Lord in all capital letters in your Bible. They have just kept it as Lord, but it really is translated for the word Yahweh. And lowercase Lord uh, comes from the Hebrew Adam, which is just Lord or master or ruler. And interesting, Adon or lowercase Lord can refer to kings. It can refer to master of servants. It could even refer to a shepherd over sheep as opposed to Lord in all caps. That is the sacred or the divine name of God. Anyway, this was the sacred name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he says, I am who I am and I am has sent me to you. So God's name, I am who I am, testifies to his eternal self-existence, his self-sufficiency. Who is God? He is the covenant Lord. He always has been, always will be. I love this out of, out of Proverbs. Proverbs 18. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is set securely on high. So when the Bible speaks of God's name, it's always something more than just simply a title. God's name stands for his entire being. It's his nature. It's who he is. So when God passed by Moses and said, Yahweh, Yahweh God, he was revealing himself as the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God who made and saves his people. And in order to give Moses a fuller revelation of God's goodness, he went on to explain this sacred name, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And I think that this is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Well, we know it's important because it's quoted a lot of times in other places in Scripture. King David prayed, For you, O Lord, are good, and by nature forgiving, abundant in loving kindness, to all who call upon you. The prophet Joel. Now return to Yahweh your God. For he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness. Even Jonah. Even Jonah. Had this to say. He, he did not want to go to Nineveh. If you remember. He did not want to go to Nineveh. Because he says. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in kindness. He knew that and didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew about this God. So the words that God spoke to Moses really became Israel's confession of faith. Whenever anyone wanted to know who God was, they would reflect back on this passage and go, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in love and faithfulness. So this divine definition lists several attributes of God. The first one being compassion. God is compassionate. I mean, this is a word of sympathy. God cares about our situation. He's sympathetic with our weakness. His heart 
is drawn to help us whenever we are in need. The Bible says, as a father has compassion on his children, Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. This is a display of divine <coughs> sympathy when punishment might have been expected. God is also gracious. This, this is a word of, of mercy, undeserved favor. Uh, you know, people often say they want God to give them what they deserve. Uh, if we were to do that, I think we would all perish in our, in our sins. Yeah, not a good bargain. Rather than giving us what we deserve, he gives us something we don't deserve. His free gift of, of grace. You know, there's a, there's the story that has been around for many years of, of these, uh, two ladies that, uh, one lady wanted to have her picture taken for, uh, uh, for some event. And so she and her friend, uh, went to the, to the, get her hair done up, had the makeup, and then they went to the, to the photographer to have her picture taken. And, uh, she took her seat in the photography studio and, uh, the lady says to the, to the photographer as he was, you know, setting up the lighting and everything, I really want your pictures to do me justice. And her friend leaned over and whispered to her and says, honey, what you need is not justice in this picture, but mercy. <laughs> and, you know, we, we're not in front of a camera lens, but we don't need God's justice. We need his mercy. You know, the next it says, God is slow to anger. What a vivid way of describing God's patience. You know, some translations use the term long suffering. To say that God is slow to anger implies that there, there are times that he gets angry. He responds to sin with holy wrath. But God is slow to anger. He's not capricious or volatile in his anger like the gods of Baal were very, seemed to be very uh, volatile in, in their anger. And when God acts against evil, he does it righteously. He does it deliberately. And he does not lose his temper. Uh, there's one commentary. Uh, John Mackey explained it this way. He said, slow to anger does not present the Lord as a frustrated deity who eventually loses his patience and strikes out against those who have thwarted him. It rather acknowledges that God is reluctant to act against his creation even when it is in rebellion against him. He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance. But he is not forgetful and will not condone sin. At the time of his choosing, he will act decisively against it. Peter, the Apostle Peter, said something similar about God's character in relation to the final judgment. This is found in 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, 
but for all to come to repentance. The compassionate, the gracious, the long-suffering God abounds in loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness. Do you ever hear that word today? Well, this refers really specifically to the commitment that God made to his people in the covenant. God's covenant love is connected to really the Hebrew word truth. It's, it's, it's truth, faithfulness in some translations. But it signifies more than anything else, steadfastness. And so the point here is that God is always going to follow through on his love. His love is loyal and steadfast. He never goes back on a promise. He keeps on loving, keeps on loving. And his love is boundless. His love is without measure, beyond degree. Psalm 108 says this, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Verse 7, as we move on, emphasizing loving kindness again by repeating it and speaks of God maintaining this love to thousands. You've got to understand here, this thousands isn't referring to people. It's referring to generations. And from the time of this, we haven't reached thousands of generations yet. So it's real meaning is unending. And although the wording is not quite identical, it kind of echoes the second commandment in which God promised to show loving kindness to thousands, even out of the second commandment of those who keep his commands. The love of God spreads far and wide, lasts from generation to generation to generation. Finally, in this section, God is forgiving. And the Hebrew term here means to lift up and carry. The image behind this word forgive is the lifting of a burden off of an individual. So this gives us, this gives us a picture of what God does with our sin. He takes it away, lifting that heavy burden, lifting that burden of guilt, right? Off of our shoulders. And to show how forgiving he is. He doesn't just stop there. But he says. I am forgiving iniquity. Transgression. And sin. Three categories of unrighteousness. Iniquity. Or wickedness. Is to turn aside. From what is right. And good. Transgression. Sometimes. Translated as rebellion is much more defiant. Uh, it is a willful violation in terms of the covenant. A willful violation involving not merely disobeying a rule or a regulation. But get this. the It means betraying the relationship that one has with the covenant king. That is transgression. It involves treachery. And disobedience. Anyone who commits this type of sin is a traitor to God. And the last term sin is kind of an all-encompassing. You've I'm sure you've heard this before. This sin 
missing the mark, kind of a most broad sweep in general, any, any kind of uh, moral failure. Well, the point here, again, is that God was willing to forgive all kinds of sin. Nothing that we have done, no matter how evil in the sight of God, is so evil that we have fallen beyond his reach. God is willing to forgive our sin. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so this is God who stood near Moses on the mountain, the compassionate, the gracious, the patient, the loving, the forgiving God. And this is the God whom Israel worshipped. And it's a good thing too because no other God would have saved them. Only the compassionate, gracious Lord could rescue a people like the Israelites. I mean, think about this. This is the God they needed. They needed someone to hear their cry of distress when they were groaning under the bondage of Pharaoh, when they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. And God heard them. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and God knew them. God hears, God remembers, God knows. The Israelites needed a gracious God who would treat them better than they deserved. And this is how God treated them all through their journey with unmerited, undeserved favor. He rescued them from slavery. He loaded them up with treasure. He blessed them with his law. And what had the Israelites done to deserve any of this? Absolutely nothing. I mean, the Israelites needed a patient God. That, well, think about this. They were a bunch of malcontents, always grumbling, always complaining. None of you have ever grumbled before God before or complained, have you? No, no. They needed a God who was slow to anger, who would not give up on them, even when they were hard to love. And speaking of love, they needed a loving God, a God who would be faithful to his covenant. And God was faithful. The reason he rescued them from slavery was because he remembered his covenant. I mean, Moses said it best after the people had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. He said, in your loving kindness, you have guided the people who you have redeemed. And the Israelites really needed a forgiving God, didn't they? Remember remember the context here. Only days before, the Israelites had worshipped a golden calf. They were guilty of this wickedness, guilty of rebellion, guilty of sin. Moses had prayed for them. He begged God, please forgive their sin. And God answered Moses' prayer because he is a forgiving God. And so when Moses met with God on the mountain, God revealed himself as the God of the Exodus, the God who saved Israel for his glory. He proclaimed in word what he had already demonstrated in his actions. This is the God who saved Israel, the only one who could have done it. 
And this is the God that we need as well. <clears throat> no other God can save people like us. If you think about it. The God who passed by Moses in glory is the same God that, that we need. We need a God who is compassionate. Who cares about our situation. We need a gracious God who gives us what we don't deserve. We need a God who won't give up on us. We need a loving God who is faithful to his promise. A forgiving God who takes away our sin. And the wonderful truth about the gospel is that the God of Exodus has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. What God gave to Moses was a definition of his own deity, but it serves as a summary of the character of Jesus Christ. I mean, this was the confession of the early church. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But what about the rest of the divine attributes that we just talked about? Is Jesus compassionate? Oh, yes. Compassion is a word that the Gospels use to describe Jesus. And see in the crowds, he felt compassion for them. His compassion was real, real sympathy. And becoming a man, Jesus was able to enter in all the misery and suffering of this fallen world. As the Bible says, he was able or is able to sympathize with our weakness. Is Jesus gracious? Well, the Bible says that he is full of grace and truth. It says that God has given us an abundance of grace through Jesus Christ. And when we speak of his grace, we're really speaking of the cross where he died for our sins. God treats us better than we deserve. Rather than making us suffer and die for our sins, he accepts the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. This is grace. Is Jesus patient? Yes, he's slow to anger. <clears throat> did Jesus get angry? Yes, there were examples. Uh, think of what he did to the, at the, to the money changers in the temple. Or the way that he responded to the Pharisees who refused to show mercy on the Sabbath. He did get angry. But he is slow to anger, especially when it came to his own disciples. I mean, think about how patient he was with their repeated failures. Think about how patient he was with Peter. Uh, when, when they failed, the disciples failed to understand who he was, what his mission was, what he had come to do. And yet he was so patient with them. Does Jesus show loving kindness? Yes, everything that Jesus did to save us was an act of loving kindness. He became man. He kept God's law. He endured the cross. He did it all out of loving kindness. Jesus was faithful to do everything that was necessary, necessary for our salvation. <clears throat> Scripture says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
to be the propitiation for our sins. How wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. Jesus abounds in love and faithfulness. And is he forgiving? He forgave sinners. He forgave tax collectors. He forgave the disciples when they fell and stumbled. He forgave women caught in adultery. He forgave enemies. He even forgave the men who nailed him to the cross. Jesus is the very definition of God. If we take this most important statement about God's identity in the Old Testament, compare it to the life of Christ, we see that Jesus is God, the very God. So in a sense, when God passed by Moses on the mountain, proclaiming his attributes, he was telling Moses about God the Son. God was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord God of compassion and grace. You know, as we have been going through Exodus and as we continue, I think we long to see what Moses saw and hear what Moses heard. But the important thing is that we can know God through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you struggling are you suffering? Jesus is full of compassion. He cares about your situation individually. Are you weighed down with guilt for anything? Jesus is gracious and forgiving. <laughs> he will treat you better than you deserve. Probably better than you would treat yourself. Are you filled with any doubt, anxiety? Jesus is loving and faithful. He keeps his promises to the very end. Now, I struggled, I really struggled about stopping right here. But I, but I didn't want to end it here because God did not, did not end his sermon to Moses right here. He had a little bit more to say. God, God concluded his message by saying this. Uh, yet, there's always something that follows if you see yet. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Again, this is kind of an echo from the second commandment where it says, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So the sins of those who rebel against God, they leave a bitter legacy for generations that follow. God holds us responsible for our actions not just as individuals, but even as family groups. And you think about it, in, in biblical times, the people generally lived in extended families with three or four generations sharing the same home. And this kind of helps us understand what God said when he says, you know, to the third and fourth generation. 
Uh, <coughs> generations were living together in community. Uh, one example in Scripture of how this happened is when he punished the families of Korah, uh, Dathan, and Abiram when they rebelled against Moses. But talking about God's justice, it sometimes has a way of making people squirm, making them uncomfortable. We would just, per this is why I couldn't leave this. We, we would have preferred to just talk about God's love and his grace and leave it there. But this is not all of who God is. He is holy and just. We have to take him as a whole, not just in parts. And we have to, to, to hold on to his love and his justice at the same time. You know, the Bible teaches many things like this. It talks about the unity of God and the trinity of the Godhead, the humanity and the deity of Christ, the divine and human authorship of Scripture. It talks about God's sovereignty in our lives and yet our responsibility. Uh, so one of the marks of sound theology is that we proclaim everything that Scripture teaches, not just part. I mean, this kind of distinguishes biblical orthodoxy from, uh, from heresy. Uh, heretics leave out a part of the truth. They believe in the humanity of Jesus, for example, and not his deity. They think that human responsibility or human freedom somehow limits God's design, divine sovereignty. And I could go on. So when it comes to the doctrine of God, we have to believe what God says about himself. He's a God of justice as well as a God of grace. Now, most people or some people might want to think of God as a kindly, kindly grandfather who smiles and indulges their sin. I mean, this is the kind of God that's promoted in liberal theology. Come on. A God of, I would call it unjust love. But this is not the God of the Bible. Our definition of God is not complete unless it includes his divine justice. And it's only within the context of divine justice that his other attributes really have their fullest expression. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. This is the important paradox as there are plants which will flourish only in mountain soil. So it appears that mercy will only flower when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. God does not let sin go unpunished. And this is one of his perfections. This is one of his attributes. God is righteous. He is a God who punishes sin. But we just said God is a God of love and compassion and long-suffering and loving kindness. It's, is this a contradiction? No. You ask the question, how can the same God forgive and also punish? Well, there is a tension here. How do we resolve this tension? 
This is a problem because we are the guilty ones. If we looked at this list that I just read, just of some of God's attributes, we don't measure up, do we? We're not compassionate when it comes right down to it. Gracious. How many of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, oh yeah, I'm slow to anger all the time. <laughs> Clearly we <laughs> Are we abounding in loving kindness? Are we willing to forgive all kinds of sin? We don't measure up, do we? We're not at all the kind of people that God wants us to be. But if that's the case, how can he accept us? We just read he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is not to be trifled with. Now, some of this, some people try to resolve this difficulty by saying there's a difference between God of the Old Testament and God the Son in the New Testament. They will say the God of the Old Testament is the God of justice, but in the New Testament, Christ is the God of love. Uh-uh. This is wrong for at least a couple of reasons. First, it's wrong to say that God is just is different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I mean, as we've seen, God who led Israel out of Egypt was compassionate and gracious and loving kindness. And I've already explained how that revealed God the Son. And somehow people have the idea that Jesus never condemned anyone for anything. When in fact, he often rebuked people for their sins and warned them explicitly about the judgment to come. No one in the Bible talked more about hell than Jesus. And so the second half of Exodus that talks about God judging sin applies to Jesus as much as the first half in his compassion. And this kind of leads us into a time of communion today. How do we reconcile God's justice with his grace? It seems very confusing until we understand that God worked it out on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died to make atonement for our sin. The Bible said this, said that he could do this so that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Crucifixion satisfied God's justice. Jesus paid the debt that we owed because of our sin. This was also an act of mercy and grace because anyone who puts their faith in Christ is truly forgiven. We serve a loving, forgiving God. We do not have to die for our own sins. Jesus has already suffered the punishment we deserve. His body was broken.
His blood was spilled out for us. God has only grace and mercy for us. And he can give us this without denying any of his other perfections, without doing violence to his character, because Jesus Christ satisfied the claims of God's justice in our place. And now everyone who believes in him knows that the Lord God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness and forgiving all kinds of sin. Let me just close this time in prayer and we'll lead into communion. Lord, Father, may we come to a deeper understanding of your divine nature. May we see your glory revealed in your compassion. Father, your grace, your patience with us. And your loving kindness. Show us how we can be more like you. May we know your forgiveness as well. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy and love shown to us through Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for this. In your holy name, amen. I couldn't help but be struck by the thought that I never, when Moses asked to see God, God chose to show himself through his word. And just like Moses had that glimpse, but mostly he saw him through God's word, how we can see God today. And even Jesus came to reveal the Father, but only a small population actually saw Jesus. Mm-hmm. We know Jesus through his word. That's exactly right. And that's just sort of neat. It is. Mm-hmm. All right, Bill, do you want to?